I really believed for a long time in my in my life, and I would fight with my dad about this. I remember, you know, I always believed that oh, Canada treats everybody equally. Everybody, mm. you know, everybody is uh, exactly the same. Everybody is nice. Everybody is wonderful, and um, that's because that was the circle that I lived in. I was speaking in an echo chamber, and now mm. I know that if you are black or brown in Toronto, you're five times more likely to be stopped and frisked on the street for no reason, or 17 times more likely if you're in a white neighborhood. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall. I'm the project coordinator for the National Self-Represented Litigants Project at the University of Windsor Law School. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And today we're calling this episode Islamophobia in Our Backyard. We have a really great conversation with Khalil Jessa, who is a student at Windsor Law and is just a great guy. He certainly is. Um, since the Muslim ban in the U.S. first came into effect, albeit briefly, last February, Khalil has become increasingly active in the law school in drawing attention to the impact of the Trump administration anti-Muslim policies, even from our side of the border. Uh, this is especially important for Windsor students because Windsor Law students who are, are students on the Jewel JD program with the University of Detroit Mercy are regularly crossing the US border. And of course, many Windsor students are regularly crossing the US border, it's right there. Law students holding citizenships in one of the seven Muslim countries affected by the original ban, of course, had significant anxieties about crossing the border in the weeks before the ban was suspended. And in fact, some chose not to risk crossing at all and instead actually Skyped into their classes in Detroit. But as an ongoing matter, uh, I think that Khalil and his peers in the Stu Muslim Students Association in the law school wanted the law school administration to be ready to counter any expression of anti-Muslim sent sentiments that might emerge, even in what we consider to be a very progressive and collegial community. In a meeting with faculty, Khalil um, and others described their fears that the far-reaching effects of the Trump policies might be to open up and even embolden hostility about Muslims, even in, as we said, the environment that we usually see as very progressive and tolerant. So Windsor Law has undertaken a couple of different initiatives in the wake of the travel ban, including research sessions on the legality of the ban, a meeting with local elected representatives, and an interfaith forum, a community interfaith forum um, that I helped work on as well. And Khalil was active in all of these initiatives. I reached Khalil in his hometown of Vancouver just as the summer was drawing to an end. Hello. Hello, Khalil. It's Julie calling. How are you? I'm well. How are you, Julie? Good, good. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what it's going to be like coming back and finishing third year at Windsor and continuing some of the work that you've been doing over the last couple of years. Because although I know there's a lot of things that you're obviously having to think about as you plan your future and think about the kind of practice you might want to do, there's another issue that often consumes you and a great deal of your time as well, and that is the hostile climate that many Canadian Muslims are experiencing. 
Can you talk a little bit to begin with, Khalil, about that climate and perhaps especially how it's developed in the last year or so? This hostile climate is, you know, it's not, you know, for some people they may feel like, you know, this is what's happening right now. But it's something that actually goes back, uh, for me personally, goes back to 9-11. Because before 9-11, I was not aware that I was different, that I could be looked at Mm. with suspicion, that, um, you know, that that my faith or my, uh, my background is somehow seen as a threat to society. I was not aware. So how, how old were you then, Khalil, when 9-11 happened, if you don't mind me asking? I believe I was in grade 7, so about right. 12 or, or 13 years old. So what happened that made you realize all of a sudden that there was a hostility that you hadn't experienced before? I mean, I, I, I can tell you that, you know, uh, some of it would be, you know, jokes, friends teasing you, calling you a terrorist. Mm. Or, uh, you know, when it was 9-11 in the morning, they'd all look at you. You know, it was a joke. It was always seen as something young. You sort of, uh, you don't see it in any other way. Uh, But as you get older, you see that actually these jokes are coming from somewhere. And they influence how people actually think and behave. And those jokes are in some ways a little bit of a disguise for real bobs. Absolutely, absolutely, and I think you know I, I, you're naive as a kid um, when you when you see that and, and experience that you know that people have their biases because you don't see yourself as any different, and so you think, why mm. would anyone else see me as any different? Mm. Mm. But that's uh, that that's when it sort of you know uh, I said I, I became more hyper aware of my Muslim identity than I was previously. But I can talk about the last few years in particular. So for many Muslims in this country, Justin Trudeau represented a a, a new beginning. Mm -hmm. Because through his campaign, we see that the country rejected the politics of fear, you know, to to a wide extent. They rejected Stephen Harper's pitting of one people against another. They rejected, at least in part, C-51, which, you know, will be used to target and spy on, on Muslims and Muslim commu- communities. But a year later, our neighbors to the south elected a man whose primary message was xenophobia. Yeah. And that message was emboldened. It's emboldened those people who have those similar tendencies or feelings in our own country. And so while there was a rejection of politics of hate in Canada, um, that rejection, I believe, has led to a sort of resentment from those people who, who sort of revel in that divisionism that Donald Trump's election, you know, brought about, and they seem to have this new social license to openly talk about and project those those hateful views. And so, I would say as a Muslim Canadian, it's been a, a bit of an emotional roller coaster. You know, there was yeah. a moment where we felt that we were moving in the right direction. You start to feel a little more safe, a little bit more. Uh, excited uh, about the future, you feel that your government could actually be a or have some reflection of your experiences. 
Yep. Um, and, and then that gets pushed further and for, further back. Um, I think as uh, a law student, I've, I've become more outspoken about it than I, I have been in, in the past. Uh, and that may be because I have the, first of all, I have great, uh, a great support team around me. Um, at the Windsor Law School, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and having a having a you know being a lone voice is much more difficult than being you know a voice in unison, and so uh, that's been a big help in giving the strength for us to actually speak out when we when we see these issues, but also having uh, knowing that I'll have a profession behind me, you know, mm-hmm. gives me sort of at least I could say some sort of like financial backing that you know what I can speak my mind and what I mm-hmm. believe without mm-hmm. social consequence or anything else, because nobody can take away my education from me. And so well, I that's right. That's right. So, so Carl, I just want to take you back to something you just said that was really interesting to me, because I think, you know, I mean, I also felt that um, in the 2015 federal election, there was a way in which Canada differentiated itself by rejecting some of the ways in which paranoia and fear was being whipped up against Muslims, Canadian Muslims. And I remember feeling, as obviously you did, you know, this feeling of tremendous relief and pride in Canada. But what's happening south of the border seems, as you have said, to lead to this kind of more permissive culture north of the border. And in fact, I recall a meeting uh, around the time that the first travel ban was coming in in the law school with students, including yourself and members of faculty, in which some people expressed amazement that in our liberal progressive access to justice law school, nonetheless, there might be expressions of Islamophobia um, and that, you know, this just isn't Canada and it's not the Windsor Law School. So, I mean, are we too naive? when we imagine that somehow we have a different culture here? Um, I think we are, I think we are uh, naive. I, I wouldn't say that our culture is exactly the same as the United States. I mean, they have their own history and their own yes. uh, sort of issues. But I think to think that we are somehow immune from it mm. is, is wrong. And I can say, you know, I had a strong naivety about the issue as well. You know, I, I, I really believed for a long time in my, in my life, and I would fight with my dad about this, I remember. You know, I always believed that, oh, Canada treats everybody equally. Everybody's, mm. you know, everybody is uh, exactly the same. Everybody is nice. Everybody is wonderful. And um, that's because that was the circle that I lived in. I was speaking in an echo chamber. And now mm. I know that if you are black or brown in Toronto, you're five times more likely to be stopped and frisked on the street for no reason, or 17 times more likely if you're in a white neighborhood. I know that if there were 1,100 white women missing from, uh, you know, over a 10-year span, there would be national inquiry, but not when there's 1,100 Aboriginal yes. women. You know, I know that the random security check is not really random, and I know this because when I stand in line with other people that I'm traveling with, who are not people of color, I'm standing uh, a much longer time being questioned before they let me they let me move on. Yeah. And so I, I can see it quite clearly that this is happening, and even to the types of questions that I'm asked. 
And so while say I I am you know I'm I'm happy and I'm lucky to live in Canada where we do have a charter that recognizes multiculturalism simply recognizing multiculturalism is not enough we need to be fighting for multiculturalism and I think that we have sort of put a blanket over top of these issues and and and, and hidden from ourselves you know a lot of these things come from inherent bias. They're not because people are bad or evil or they may be as unaware that this is happening, you know, as as, as everyone else. And so 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 say some more about that, Khalil. You know, what you see as the roots here. Because what you're describing is a sort of end of innocence for yourself, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And I think there are many other people who would uh, feel similarly. Um so the reality is that there is bias in Canadian culture. Is there something special or different about the kind of bias that leads to Islamophobic attitudes? Or, you know, how 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 much do we have to think about this as a different phenomenon than other forms of bias? Mm-hmm. Well, I'd say in some ways it's different and in, and in some ways it's the same. And I think that the word Islamophobia describes what's going on pretty accurately. The phobia is an irrational fear of Muslims or Islam. And I think that the statistics show that those people who regularly interact with Muslims or live in more multicultural neighborhoods are less likely to hold any sort of fear than people who do not. You know, find in areas where there's little immigration, little or no immigration, there's more likely to be a fear of Sharia coming in or trans people assault people in washrooms or... You know, Quebec is an example where we see outside of Montreal, there is, uh, where there's less racial and ethnic diversity, there is more fear. Yeah. And so, you know, we have small towns rallying against Sharia when there's no chance of that even occurring in the small <laughs> Exactly. Towns. Exactly. So if, if part of this is about our lack of experience with difference, which I certainly think when I think about my own upbringing and my evolution as a person, you know, a lot of my biases have been about the lack of experience and as my experience changes, so do my biases. I mean, what does that tell us about what we might be able to do? Well, I think it's important that, you know, when we're trying to combat people's phobias, we have to take the time to understand where they're coming from. And I think that people fear what they don't know. It's it's inherent for many people to try and protect what they have. You know, they they look at the way that they do things as being the right way to do things. And that inherent fear that we have, and it exists in everyone to an extent, yeah. that inherent fear is exploited by news organizations or, you know, uh, other people who have motives to exploit that fear, to pit us against one another for some sort of gain, political gain, economic gain, or, or anything else. And so these there are organizations out there who give people exactly the type of information that they want to justify their inherent bias, even if it's not even if it's not true. And so um, I think that if we want to combat this, we need to really understand why do people have that fear? Where is that fear coming from? You know, how do we actually um, address that fear and make them feel, 
comfortable living in an environment with people who are different than them. You and I worked recently on a small interfaith community forum in Windsor where we pretty much tried to do that. We brought people together from a lot of different faith communities and uh, no faith and tried to use it as a little bit of an evening to introduce people personally to one another and also to explain some of the basic tenets of Islam and Sharia and so forth. Is that the kind of approach that you think is a constructive one if we're really trying to get at the roots of what people's fears are? I think that is a constructive approach. And I actually think we need to have a broader approach than than just that. You know, uh, we need to combat this on a number of fronts. And it cannot, you know, I think one of the things that that we've seen happen in the post-9-11 era is that it's become acceptable to treat one people different than another and Mm -hmm. allow hatred to be thrown at one people. You know, there's a social acceptance, you know, maybe in the post-Trump era, there's a Mm -hmm. social acceptance that exists. And it's, it's not... There is no social consequences for saying something hateful or, you know, freedom of speech exists, but freedom of speech exists and normally there would be social consequences for what you say. Not criminal consequences, but social consequences in your friends groups, around the people in society. Those consequences don't exist so much anymore. So I think that's one side of the coin. So so there's there's both a positive reinforcement that people can get from um, meeting people who are different and with different faiths from their own, learning more about it. But you're also saying, I think, Khalil, that there need to be clearly set down standards of what is tolerable and acceptable behavior and speech. Exactly. That you can't have one without the other. Exactly. I mean, why is it okay to say, I mean, you say things against Muslims and not say things against other people? If there exists some sort of social stigma, why has that social stigma been torn down when it comes to Muslims? And I think we need to examine that and understand that in order to say, okay, how do we build that back up? Because it's important for people to feel safe in this society. And I'm talking about, you know, for Muslim people and people of color to feel safe in this society. That sort of stigma of saying hateful things needs to be rebuilt. On the other hand, the work that we do to educate people is also also very important. And when I say that we need to make that more broad, you know, I I can look at the gay rights movement, for example, Mm. and see in the last 10 years, you know, how how have minds changed on that issue? Mm. Why is it more difficult now than it was uh, in the past? And I think someone someone once told me that, you know, the gay rights uh, movement is not necessarily, it's not being won, uh, it's being won on our television set. You know, it's being won by Will and Grace or, or yes. modern, you know, ordinary Americans living their lives who happen to be gay. And I, and I wonder, you know, where are the ordinary Muslims in Canada and America on television who normalize us in society? Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit, Khalil, about institutions like the University Law School. Um, and how they should be responding to what seems to be a resurgence in Islamophobia and what kind of support they can and should offer to Muslim students. Well, I mean, I can look at the University of Windsor or our law school in particular as a a really good example 
of what uh, what the institution can can do. And I think, firstly, what's most important is that there needs to be an environment where students feel comfortable talking to administration, knowing that they the administration will understand, will take their concerns seriously, mm. will not sweep it under the rug or say that it's just in your head or you hold some sort of, uh, you know, chip on your shoulder. I think doing that, you know, I think that happens in other, a lot of other institutions. But taking the, the issue seriously. So, Khalil, just a couple of weeks ago, Quebec became the first state or province in North America to ban women from wearing the niqab or burqa in public. What does this type of law mean for Muslim Canadians? and especially for women. So I think what's interesting about this law and what makes it a little bit different than other laws that have been targeting its Muslims is that most laws or many laws that are targeting its Muslims are hidden behind the guise of security. Uh, things mm. like Bill C-51 and other, and other ones. But in this case, it's almost a direct manifestation of Islamophobia combined with this sort of savior complex which exists. And I think we can look at this law from two different perspectives. Uh, first, as you said, what does it mean for the wider Muslim community and what does it mean for, for Muslim women? And I think for the wider Muslim community, it results in a further stigmatization of that community. You know, laws that target specific vulnerable groups are not new in Canada. They've been used in housing to prevent minority communities yeah. moving in certain areas or, or even preventing, you know, interracial marriages. Yeah. But what targeted discriminatory laws, discriminatory laws do is that they make it socially acceptable to stigmatize against Muslims in other points of interaction. You know, there's an interplay between our laws and our values. And this law reinforces the racist attitudes that people have to, to other people who are different. And, and what would you, you say? Know, you mentioned the savior complex. Mm -hmm. This idea mm -hmm. that somehow this is going to protect women. What would you say to people who would say that? I mean, I think it's a very, it's a very fascinating uh, sort of, or a, a great irony in this case, is that uh, while they think they are sort of emancipating these women, they're actually working against these women and, and working against the feminist agenda as well. And so while there are some women, uh, as there are in every culture, who face misogyny, yeah. Uh, this law actually works against those women by making them more vulnerable, more vulnerable, because you're removing the ability of these women to gain social services from the state. Right, and they're going to have to stay indoors now, presumably, if they're going to continue to wear any kind Exactly. Of I mean, they're they're not going to simply uh, give up their their faith or give up their religion or uh, or sort of move away from any of those misogynistic pressures that are, are which we believe to be forcing them to wear this and so uh it will just further confine them so now you know what's mm -hmm. the situation that we have we have a law that punishes those women who choose to wear the cob out of their own free will and simultaneously making those women who who do not want to wear the cob more vulnerable in our society and so i think it hurts and you know this type of law hurts muslims but it also hurts the entire nation because uh, we've allowed discrimination to enter back into our laws. Khalil, in this conversation, when he was talking to you about his personal experience um, 
around and after 9-11. That was very powerful. It was. Uh, Talking about how at the time, and I'm sure since then, friends joking about him being a terrorist and that at the time... And he's just a little kid in grade seven. Yeah, Yeah. and you don't quite get what's going on Mm -hmm. and you don't really understand and you don't really think it's a big deal, but that his talking about how as he got older... And as he's kind of become more aware of the attitudes out there about Islam and Muslims and becoming, as he says, hyper aware Mm. of his Muslim identity. And it's just what an uncomfortable thing for something so personal, you know, whether you are a really strong believer or not, people are making your whole identity about this one thing. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, what really resonated for me when Khalil talked about that was this idea that something so personal has to be then kind of seen on the outside in Mm -hmm. a particular way. I mean, I did a piece of research um, a few years ago with Muslim communities in the US and Canada, and I interviewed a lot of people who were really very secular. Nonetheless, virtually every single person I interviewed brought up without me asking them 9-11 and the impact that it had had on their lives and on their families. And many of them spoke in very similar terms to Khalil, that they now felt warned that they were seen as Muslims by the people around them, and that meant a certain thing. But also, secondly, that their, their wish to be able to stand up for their community, whether that was standing up for it in a cultural way or standing up for it in terms of religious precepts or anything in between those two, that that was something that now was really important to them Mm -hmm. in a way that it wasn't before. So they were almost forced into being advocates of their community, whether that was a religious or a cultural one, in ways that they had never expected to be before in order to try to counter some of that. Mm -hmm. And just to kind of go off of that, him talking about just the roller coaster that he's been on and that so many people in his community have been on over the last couple of years, you know, first within Canada being pleased that Trudeau was elected and what he kind of represented and then (laughs) to get Trump. The letdown. The letdown Mm -hmm. and, you know, everything that has followed the election of Donald Trump um, is just, uh, I can't imagine. Yeah. And, you know, Khalil, I thought, put it very well when he said that it wasn't enough for us in Canada to kind of rest on our laurels and support multiculturalism, that we actually had to be proactive about recognizing that even within what we might consider to be a more enlightened state, there are going to be people who will still be affected Mm -hmm. by some of the anti-Muslim propaganda out there. And I was also tremendously struck by how empathetic he was with people who might have feelings of hostility towards Muslims, talking about how people without a connection with Muslim friends, um, people who had no knowledge of Islam and who are going to be fed information that is going to scare them, uh, that what we need to do is to address that through making Muslims, as he would put it, more normal, Mm -hmm. just like we now do with people who are gay and lesbian and transgendered. Yeah, I thought that was a really good analogy he used, talking about representation 
of uh, gay people, how that has changed in the media over the last number of years mm. and how it's normalized, as you say, and that we need something similar for the Muslim community. That's right, but there are a lot of uh, a lot of mountains ahead to climb here, and I think Khalil knows that, but he's ready to climb them. In further news, since we recorded this conversation, there has been continuing controversy about the burqa ban, efforts to clarify the law by Quebec officials, and Prime Minister Trudeau's statement that, quote, I don't think it's the government's business to tell a woman what she should or shouldn't be wearing. We will keep you up to date on this issue, and we welcome your comments. Our other two news items this week relate to some strains in the relationship between the Canadian public and our judiciary. The NSRLP has terrific relationships with some outstanding and dedicated justices, including board member Chief Justice Derek Green from Newfoundland and Labrador, and Justice David Price, who will be an upcoming podcast guest. But there are some strains. First... Comments made by Quebec Judge Jean-Paul Braun in a sex assault trial last May have come to light as a result of audio recordings. The only thing more shocking than Braun's crass comments about whether a 17-year-old girl assaulted by a taxi driver was, quote, flattered by the attention, along with his judicial assessment of her weight and general attractiveness, is the fact that this is not the first time Braun has made offensive and inappropriate comments in a sex assault trial. The Quebec Minister of Justice has announced that she will file a complaint with Quebec's Judicial Council. Also, in federal court last week was an application for intervener status by former Cabinet Minister and controversial police chief Julian Fantino in the judicial review being brought by Donald Best against the Canadian Judicial Council. Best's case against the CJC argues that the complaints process is inadequate and biased, and that it was wrong for the CJC to dismiss his own complaint against Justice Brian Shaughnessy, who sentenced Best and SRL to prison for contempt in absentia. Fantino argued that he should be granted intervener status because, quote, no one speaks for mainstream Canadians in the upcoming judicial review. Fantino's application also argued that the treatment of unrepresented litigants, who comprise many of the complainants at the CJC, was a central issue which he could provide expert evidence on. Justice Aylin rejected both these arguments and stated that the Attorney General of Canada could, quote, represent the public interest. We will keep you updated on both these stories. At the NSRLP, we want to ensure that the public has access to accountable and credible judicial complaint processes, accessible by self-represented litigants without disadvantage. The current CJC process does not meet that standard. You can find links to these stories on our webpage as usual. Visit representingyourselfcanada.com slash podcast. In next week's episode, I'll be talking with Colin Feesby who was the pro bono counsel in the Pintia and John's case that went to the Supreme Court of Canada earlier this year. Colin is going to give us his insights on how that argument succeeded and what its implications are for self-represented litigants in an episode we're calling Insiders and Outsiders. See you then.